0: Welcome to Lighthouse Faith Podcast, where we are moving forward in truth and love. I'm Lauren Green, Chief Religion Correspondent for Fox News Channel and author of the book Lighthouse Faith. You know, scientists for decades, maybe centuries actually, have searched for life on other planets. The $100 million plus search for extraterrestrial intelligence, or SETI, telescopes, were created for that purpose. But what about the Bible? Does the Bible affirm or deny the existence of extraterrestrial beings. Well, according to astronomers and physicist Dr. Hugh Ross, the Bible actually claims that God did indeed create ETI. They're called angels, and the angels particularly, the, the seven archangels, have done a lot of the heavy lifting in advancing God's agenda. For instance, the archangel Gabriel is known as God's messenger, the angel of communication telling Mary she will be with child by the Holy Spirit. You know, in his article in Salvo magazine, Ross, who's the founder of Reasons to Believe, says, quote, according to the Bible, these creatures differ from humans in that they are not constrained by either the known laws of physics or known space-time dimensions. Rather, they exist in a realm distinct from the universe, yet have been granted power to enter the human realm for brief episodes, either in physical or non-physical form. You know, who'd have thought to think angels as extraterrestrials? But it takes a scientist to explore that idea. Reasons to believe exist to open people to the gospel by revealing God in science. You know, to answer the probing questions millions of people have about the God of the Bible and the plethora of scientific discoveries. And Dr. Ross joins me now. Welcome. Well,
1: thank you for inviting me.
0: It is always a pleasure to talk to you. I always uh, feel much more intelligent after I talk to you. Um, you know, this is very interesting because this is why I wanted you on because I never even thought of angels as being ex- extraterrestrials. You know, does, you know does, does science without the aid of the Bible know of angels?
1: Well, not explicitly, but through the space-time theorems, they know that there must be reality beyond the space-time dimensions of the universe. So it certainly opens up the possibility. I mean, if you got a causal agent beyond space and time that created the universe, that causal agent could create other things outside the universe and even grant them the power to come into the universe and enter the human realm. So it's certainly scientifically plausible.
0: So why do you call angels extraterrestrials? Because that I, it just kind of blows my mind. Even think of them in that way.
1: Well, extraterrestrial in the sense that unlike us human beings, they're not constrained by the laws of physics. Uh, so, uh, you know, for us to travel to a, a distant star system is not possible. The laws of physics don't permit that. But for beings that are not subject to the laws of physics, yeah, they can come from beyond the universe, enter our realm. Uh, that's what the Bible tells us, and science certainly allows that possibility.
0: Yeah, does the Bible actually say of angels? Does it give any clue to the sort of scientific realm that they're a part of? Does it give any clue, or what does the Bible actually say about angels?
1: Well, in the Hebrew uh, Old Testament. It has a word for heaven that's got three distinct definitions. Uh, One is the uh, troposphere where rain clouds form. The second one would be the realm of the stars. The third is the realm beyond the universe. And so, for example, the New Testament, you have Paul saying he was taken up to the third heaven, which means he was taken outside of the space-time dimensions of the universe. And that's the realm where the angels can operate
0: we exist in what in three spatial dimensions and then one time is that is that how i understand it one three spatial one time so we yeah, exist in four dimensions how many dimensions really are there that we know of
1: well that we know of in order to make our particle creation model consistent with our cosmic creation model we know that there must be six very tiny space dimensions that accompany length width and height so the universe began with nine dimensions of space are all rapidly expanding from the cosmic creation event. But when gravity separated out from the other three forces of physics, six of the nine dimensions stopped expanding. So they're extremely tiny. I mean, that time when they stopped expanding is 10 to the minus 43 seconds after the cosmic creation event. And though these six dimensions are wrapped very tightly around the three very large dimensions. And -hmm. the cross sections are 20 orders of magnitude less than the diameter of electron, which is why nobody really paid any attention to them until we began to develop, you know, sophisticated particle creation models.
0: What's the purpose of having these dimensions and what is their function?
1: Well, these dimensions were discovered by theoretical physicists at Caltech, recognizing there simply isn't enough room Within length, width, and height, for all the symmetries required by quantum mechanics uh, and gravity, and for life to possibly exist in the universe, you have to have quantum mechanics and gravity and general relativity uh, coexisting.
0: You know, the quantum we got to explain the quantum because we exist in the area of I guess general physics, right? You know the three dimensions of that the quantum is a is a is a is a level of. Um, I, I, it's not singularity, well, but for the example, smallest. you, you, you uh, explain it. I'm not the scientist.
1: <laughs> yeah, I explained this in some depth in my book, uh, you know, Beyond the Cosmos, pointing out how particle physicists were recognizing: hey, if we're going to make the particle physics realm work at the quantum level, uh, you, you have to have these massive particles uh, where they're almost infinitely small. And, uh, that's when they said, we need something similar, uh, to black holes in six dimensions of space. So that's kind of the beginning of the recognition. There had to be extra dimensions of space. And this is all wrapped up in what they call unified field theory. Mm-hmm. How the universe starts off nearly infinitesimally small and nearly infinitely hot. And as it cools, the one cosmic force of physics split into two. As it continued to cool, it's split into three, and today we have four distinct forces of physics. And so it's this unified field theory that allows us to integrate our cosmic creation model with our particle creation model and make them completely uh, consistent.
0: And how do you reconcile the Bible's story of creation with what science knows, what you just explained?
1: Well, uh, Yeah, I wasn't raised in a Christian home, uh, but I became a Christian through reading the Bible in my late teenage years and in my early 20s and recognized that the Bible actually had predicted the fundamental features, what we call the Big Bang creation model, namely that repeatedly the Bible tells us that the universe has a beginning, a beginning that includes the beginning of space and time. And it was in 1970 that the first of the space time theorems uh, was published. And now we have 30 of these space time theorems, really leaving no doubt that the Bible got it right that there's a beginning to the universe. It includes a beginning of space and time. The Bible is also explicit in saying that the laws of physics do not change. You know, Jeremiah 33, God says, I'm immutable, I don't change, as proof look to the laws that govern the heavens and the earth, as they don't change, I don't change. And then the Bible names these laws of physics, in particular, talks about how the universe is subject to a pervasive law of decay, a reference to the second law of thermodynamics. And those are the three fundamental features that we call the Big Bang Model uh, that the universe indeed has a space time beginning and, uh, you know, it's subject to laws of physics that don't change. One of those laws is a pervasive law of decay, which implies as the universe expands, it gets colder and colder. And there is a debate within the Christian community. What about all these passages that talk about the stretching out of the heavens? Is that actually a reference to the expansion of the universe? Mm -hmm. A lot of theologians say yes, some theologians say well, maybe not. Uh, But you know, at least three of the features of the Big Bang model are taught in the Bible, and what impressed me, the Bible stood alone until the 20th century in teaching these features of the universe, and now we know the Bible got it right.
0: Wow, that's really amazing. The idea that of the, the angels, though, this is has brought another question to the forefront are there is there life on other planets because if the bible talks about extraterrestrials in terms of angels what about life on other planets
1: well christians have been debating that uh, for the last 2000 years i mean The only constraint you see in the Bible is what you see in the book of Hebrews, chapter nine and ten, where it says the creator of the universe, Jesus Christ died one time, one place for all. And some people looked at that and said, well, maybe that constrains physical, intelligent life. That's in need of redemption to just one planet. But that leaves open the door that maybe God created bacteria and other planets or grass. Uh, or baboons on another planet. Uh, and then people said, well, maybe the what Christ did on planet Earth actually has a toning impact beyond planet Earth. And so Christians have been debating, uh, you know, God seems to really enjoy creating. Why would he limit himself to just creating life on one planet? On the other hand, other Christians have said, when you look at the Gospel accounts, Uh, Jesus would often refuse to perform miracles. He only performed those miracles that were consistent with his purpose of bringing about the redemption of human beings who desire to be redeemed. And therefore, they say he's not going to waste his miracles. And those Christians argue planet Earth is the only place. Uh, But there's nothing explicit in the Bible that would uh, give more sway to one or the other. What I can tell you as an astronomer, however, everywhere we have looked beyond planet Earth, we only see conditions that are very hostile for advanced life. This is called the rare Earth doctrine. And uh, I don't know of any astronomers who would deny that doctrine. Although there's some that will say maybe there's planets in the universe with microbes on it, but not planets with beings like us on it.
0: But there are trillions of, of, of planets, are there are trillions of, of what, you know, galaxies, aren't there? And isn't it possible that in one galaxy somewhere that we've not explored, that there could be an Earth-like planet?
1: Well, the possibility is open. We astronomers haven't looked everywhere in the universe. Uh, however, the evidence is quite strong uh, that we probably are alone, namely that it takes a minimum time given the physics of the universe, uh, to bring about the possibility of a species like us. And we're here at that minimum time. And so there are astronomers saying, maybe after us, there could be intelligent uh, beings like us, uh, but not before us. And of course, in astronomy, we're constrained to look into the past, because it takes light like, time to reach our telescopes. So in that sense, uh, we would expect to find nothing because we're looking back at a time that's too early uh, for the equivalent of human beings uh, to exist. The other thing we notice is that, uh, you know, there's tens of thousands of clusters of clusters of galaxies, but we live in the only one that has the features of having the clusters strung out along these long uh, filaments. And that's essential for advanced light to be possible. And we live in the only super galaxy cluster that has those characteristics. And as we look in our super galaxy cluster for galaxies sufficiently like ours that could support advanced life, we don't find any. I mean, Star Wars says a galaxy far, far away. We've looked at galaxies far, far away, <laughs> and we get to find one that sufficiently matches the characteristics of the Milky Way galaxy, that it could be a candidate uh, to support advanced life.
0: It must be very and frustrating then, for you to watch a movie like Star Wars <laughs> and all of those other films. Well,
1: my sons always complain. They say, Dad, don't tell us how many times per, per minute this movie is violating the laws of physics. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but you know, this is an interesting concept, and I think people need to understand. Um, the When scientists look back, in these huge telescopes and they're seeing, you know, um, distances, they, because of the speed of light, they can only see back through time. Can you explain how the telescopes and the speed of light kind of work against each other in the sense that we're not seeing, you know, you know, how many light years away, we're seeing, you know, 30 million years ago or 15 million years ago? Yeah, astronomers
1: are constrained to observe the past. When we look at the sun, we're seeing it as it was eight minutes ago. We look at the Andromeda galaxy, we see it as it was two and a half million years ago, because that's how much time it took the light to reach our telescope. But the big benefit of that is the farther away you look, the farther back in time you can see. And we now have telescopes powerful enough that we can witness directly see 100% of the past history of the universe. I mean, in my books, I show you images of what the universe looked like when it was a hundred billionth of a trillionth of a trillionth of a second old. That's so close we can get to the cosmic creation event. And it's our ability to directly witness a cosmic creation event that gives us the most compelling, rigorous scientific evidences that a God beyond space and time must exist uh, who created our universe.
0: Um, we're going to take a break right now on Lighthouse Faith Podcast, talking with Dr. Hugh Ross, uh, founder of uh, Reasons to Believe. We'll be right back.
1: Cudlow on Fox Business is now on the go for podcast fans. Get key interviews with the biggest business newsmakers of the day. The Cudlow Podcast will be available on the go after the show every weekday at FoxBusinessPodcasts.com or wherever you download your favorite podcasts.
0: And we're back with Dr. Hugh Ross. We're uh, talking about various things of um, science and the, the universe um, and the heavens, but it, particularly about angels. And th- we were talking about angels because... Uh, you actually say that the Bible actually thinks of angels as extraterrestrials. Um, is this where angels come—where do angels come into our world, and why don't we know these angels today? I mean, are there angels existing among us and we just don't see? I mean, the the Bible actually talks about—there's um, a verse— about entertaining strangers because you might, you actually, unbeknownst to you, may be entertaining an angel.
1: Yeah, that's Hebrews 13 too. Many of us have entertained angels unawares. And the thing is that angels don't live in our realm, but they can come into our realm and they can come and go as they please. And so, for example, an angelic being can only come into our realm, they can take any physical form they choose. So they could appear as an animal, they could appear as a human being, they could appear as a flying saucer, I mean, whatever. Wow. Uh, And, uh, but they could appear to us, for example, in human form, assist us for a few seconds and then go back to the realm. So it's like you see them for a few seconds or a few minutes, then they're gone. And so that's why it tells us many of us have entertained angels unawares. And it tells us that the beginning of the book of Hebrews uh, that God will use his righteous angels to assist Christians in their ministry here on earth. And so when you read the book of Acts, you see accounts of angels rescuing uh, Peter from prison, for example. Um, and, you know, I got a story in my book, uh, uh, you know, um, Always Be Ready, where I talk about how I visited uh, this uh Well, it was a five acre estate Mm -hmm. and we were going there at night. It was very dark and uh, I opened the gate and there was this big German shepherd dog there (laughs) that guided me a hundred yards to the front door of the house. And when I got to the front door, uh, the man said, how did you get here? I said, well, your dog guided me to the front door. And he said, didn't you see the sign on the gate? It was well lit. It's a big sign and was warning you that there is a trained attack dog on the premises. This dog is trained to bark very loudly at anybody that comes to the gate. Says your dog didn't bark and says, and didn't the dog pin you to the ground? Says, no, the dog just took you right, took me right to the front door. Then he stared at me intently <laughs> and said, you wouldn't be a Christian bunny chance, would you? And I said, well, why do you ask? Is because my wife and I and our three children had been praying this evening that God would send us a Christian so we would know how we can come into a relationship with Jesus Christ. And all five prayed to receive Christ uh, that evening after asking me questions for 30 minutes. And then he showed us just how well trained the dog was. He took us out to the gate and there was a big sign there, well lit. Warning us of the trained attack dog And the young man that was with me that evening He said this is just like the book of Acts God blinded us to the sign Uh, An angel took control of that dog And got us to that door because of that man And his family's prayers
0: Wow Wow that is amazing. Let me read Hebrews uh, 13, too, because I do have it, actually, in on my list of, of Scripture. It says, Do not forget to entertain strangers, for by so doing some have unwittingly entertained angels. Um, yes. So, when we talk about angels, we're not talking about beings we can recognize as angels, right?
1: Sometimes we can, sometimes we can't. I mean, in the book of Daniel, uh, you know, a being appeared to him, Daniel, and then the angel introduced himself and said he was an angel. So it t- it depends.
0: But why don't they introduce themselves as angels? Is there is, is it just not important? Uh, well, it it tells me what I what impresses
1: me is that God uses human beings in spite of our sin, in spite of our rebellion, to carry out the mission that God has here on Earth. The angels are there to assist us. And uh, you know, I often wonder, well, if God wanted it done right, why didn't he send angels that don't have these sin problems that we do? And I think it's because God intends that by using us human beings, it's a tool whereby our character can be transformed what the holy spirit wants to do is build a christ-like demeanor in the lives of his human followers and i think that happens uh, through our ministry and the angels are there to assist us in that ministry so the weekend year by year week by week day by day begin to grow and developing the character attributes of the one that created the universe
0: you know angels though are as vulnerable i think as humans to sin but they're because they're fallen angels we know fallen angels that are part of satan's um right uh, they're you know his compadres so to speak
1: well this is why we see in first john the warning uh tests the spirits to see who they are because yes you're right uh there are righteous angels there's also evil angels and so, uh, you know we need to test the spirits. and uh, you know, don't put our confidence until we're convinced that we really are dealing with a righteous angel.
0: Um, I want to go back to one point before I move on to this other this study in Ohio uh, university. Um, the idea that if life were found in other planets, um, but so if life were found, I mean sentient beings like ourselves, were found in other planets. what are the implications for the Bible as as God's word? well i would
1: imply that god created those beings uh, on that planet i mean uh, you know one of the books i've written with our staff biochemists is origins of life basically making the point that someone a whole lot more intelligent better educated better funded with greater technology and less human beings must be responsible for the origin of life uh, so you know our organization's Reasons to Believe has written now 30 books basically showing a naturalistic interpretation of the origin and history of life as scientifically untenable. Uh, but if we do find life elsewhere, it's because God created life elsewhere. Uh, and just to be uh, clear here, I've been on public record since the 1980s. We will find the remains of life on virtually every solar system body. Uh, simply because life has been so abundant on planet Earth for so long that when meteors strike the Earth, big enough meteors, they export Earth's soil throughout the solar system. Ooh. And so, again, I've been on record. In fact, I got to speak on this at NASA Houston, saying we need to go back to the moon because on the surface of the moon, there's 20,000 kilograms of Earth's soil for every 100 square kilometers. And Earth's geology has destroyed the fossils of Earth's first life. But those the moon has virtually no geological activity. We can go to the moon, and we can recover the fossils of Earth's first life and see who got the original life model right, the theists or the non-theists. And I closed off my lecture there saying, you need to do this, because the last time I checked, theists and non-theists make up 100% of the U.S. taxpayer base.
0: <laughs> That's very interesting, and it, it brings up the next subject about the uh, the um, the study uh, at Ohio University, and it basically said that. Um, it shows that non-religious individuals tend to view Christian scientists, not Christian scientists, the, the religion, but uh, scientists who are Christian, as less intelligent than their peers due to the stereotype that Christianity and science are incompatible. There are, there's a lot in that, but let's just get to the intelligence part. What is your reaction to that kind of study?
1: Well, uh, what I've written in one of my books is that uh, you know, there was a study done in 1915 uh, where they surveyed men and women of science. Research scientists and discover that 45% believe in God and an afterlife. And it was an atheist philosopher who did, um, authored that paper. And he said, as science advances, that percentage is going to plummet. Well, they redid the survey in 1995 and got the same percentage 45% wow. believe in God and an afterlife. And uh, so there are a lot of believers within the scientific community. And particularly in the physical sciences. So like with mathematicians, it's about 80% believe in God and an afterlife. A lot of physicists and astronomers believe where you do find a significant lack of belief is in the social sciences. Mm-hmm. It's typically down at the 1% level, uh, life sciences running around about 25%. But keep in mind, there's a selection factor there. You know, in the physical sciences, we're able to make measurements to high precision. Uh, We're able to identify systematic errors uh, with high precision. And therefore, things are much more uh, fixed. And that's naturally going to draw people who want to see fixity in their studies. Uh, Whereas those who, uh, you know, are wanting to be kind of fuzzy about their beliefs, that doesn't surprise me that they gravitate to the social sciences. So yeah, I think there is a selection effect that explains why you have so many more believers in the physical sciences than the life sciences and in the life sciences, as opposed to social sciences. But for example, our own organization, Reasons to Believe, we have 175 doctoral level uh, scientists that are part of our scholar community, you know, scholars of volunteer mm. force. And some of these people are amazing in their uh, achievements. Uh, Some of them have received nominations for the Nobel Prize. And, uh, you know, our scientists have also gone on university campuses where we do what we call uh, a forum where we will explain our creation model, our biblical creation model, how it's testable, falsifiable, and predictive. You know, we'll do that in about 45 minutes. Then we'll invite a panel of professors from that university who are not believers to critique our model. And, uh, you know, we got recordings of those events and it basically demonstrates to the university community, hey, from a worldview, Christian worldview perspective, uh, the Christian faith has strong scientific credibility. But in terms of that study, I've got an important caveat. Uh, There are, you know, portions of the Christian community that take an anti-intellectual, anti-scientific position, and I think that's what's driving the comments in this article, is that they've been looking at you know that you know segment of the Christian community and saying, well, if that's Christianity, it's anti-scientific. Right. Uh, but that's a minority within the Christian community. It's not the mainstream within Christianity.
0: Well, because when I look at that, I think people are commenting on that the religion itself you know, the gospel-based Christianity is incompatible with science, which I think is really, is so much not true. I mean, I talking to scientists like you, it's obviously not true. Um, but that, you know, I remember Dr. Michael Gillen talked about how he'd actually done some uh, comparisons, and he actually said that science actually is more compatible with Christianity than it is with atheism, um, if you look at ideas oh. about truth and fixed ideas.
1: Yeah, well, uh, he was actually one of our visiting scholars, and I totally agree with him on that uh, point. And if you look at the history of science, the scientific method came out of the Reformation. And so I often refer to the scientific method as the biblical testing method, because that's where it came from, the pages of Scripture and Reformed theology. And as you see, the Reformation is what gave birth to the scientific revolution, You know, you do see sparks of scientific uh, interest in other religions, uh, but they were still born uh, within Christianity. It actually caused the scientific revolution to flourish. And so the scientific community owes a huge debt uh, to the Bible, the uh, Christian community, and particularly the Reformation.
0: Why is it that in Christianity the scientific method flourished yet in other religions, as you say, it was basically stillborn?
1: Well, for example, in the Hindu worldview, it's, uh, you've got many gods that are involved in creation. They don't agree with one another. And so in Hinduism it's the expectation that we look at the natural realm it's going to be filled with inconsistencies. Whereas in Christianity uh, you've got a single creator. I mean, yes, Christianity is God, one essence and three persons, but the three persons have a single plan in creation. Uh, you know, they have a single set of character attributes. And therefore, we would expect uh, to see something consistent and harmonious uh, from a Christian worldview perspective. And the fact that the Bible tells us the laws of physics do not change, means we can trust what we see in our scientific measurements and this is really what gave birth to the scientific method and particularly look at the first page of the bible where it gives the first of the creation accounts notice Mm -hmm. how carefully it follows what we now identify as a scientific method i mean step one of the scientific method don't interpret until you establish the frame of reference or the point of view Step two, don't interpret until you establish the starting conditions. That's laid out in Genesis 1-2. The Spirit of God is hovering over the surface of the waters of planet Earth. That's the frame of reference for which we're to interpret the six days of creation. Then it gives us the four starting conditions. It's dark upon the surface of the waters. The water covers the whole surface of the Earth, and the Earth is unfit for life and an empty of life. Then you go into the six days. That's step three of the scientific method. Don't interpret, but establish what happens when and what order. And then you've got this chronology in the six creation days. Then Genesis one ends with the final conditions. That's step four of the scientific method. Step five is you develop a tentative interpretation of the explanation of what you've been observing. Then you test it with other observations and experiments. And, you know, I was studying the different religions of the world uh, before I became a Christian. I noted that the Bible had over two dozen lengthy creation texts. The most i found in any other holy book was three and Mm. typically just one. And it's by going to uh, those other creation texts that you can test your interpretation of Genesis one. I mean, an obvious example. You got Psalm 104, Job 37, 38, and 39, and Proverbs 8. Those three biblical texts, creation texts, parallel what you see in Genesis chapter 1. And so, for example, you got a very brief statement on creation day two about water above and water below. Mm -hmm. The reason why I think Moses could afford to be so cryptic in the book of Job which predates the book of Genesis, you've got an entire chapter and a half on creation day two. Job 37 and the first half of Job 38 explains in detail the water cycle that God had designed for the Earth. And so that's what's going on in creation day two. There's water in the atmosphere above, water in the lakes and rivers and seas below, and the book of Job gives us all the details of what's happening there how those multiple forms of frozen precipitation, multiple forms of liquid precipitation, and how we need all those forms in order for advanced animals to exist on the face of the earth. And so there again, you get that completion, mm-hmm. test your interpretation. And so it was seeing that in the Bible, uh, that was my first clue. Maybe this book is really from the one who actually created everything.
0: You know, it's very. I mean, I know that uh, we're actually, you know, uh, talking about the, the sciences and the and the stars and physics and astronomy. But something has happened on the face of the earth that has makes people pay attention to the geophysics. I mean, the the idea of geology and and the the earthquakes. Um, you know, I know that this earthquake in Turkey was a slip something something where the tech. For the, uh, right. the, the plates actually slipped um, under each other how do you interpret things like that in terms of God's plan if God is good and loving why would this happen in and that you know thousands and thousands of lives would be lost
1: well it tells us at the end of the chapter 16 of John in this world you'll have tribulation but take heart I've overcome the world As a physicist, I like to paraphrase that passage. In this world, you'll have thermodynamics, but take heart, I've overcome thermodynamics. And, you know, one book I've written, Why the Universe is the Way It Is, I explain how the laws of physics are optimally designed uh, for the rapid elimination eradication of evil. To me, that's one of the fundamental reasons why God created the universe the way he did, to use it as a tool uh, to eliminate evil uh, once and for all. And that requires thermodynamics, gravity, electromagnetism, and the strong and weak nuclear force. And it's because of those laws of physics that we get hurricanes, we get earthquakes, we get wildfires. Uh, But what amazes me is that on Earth... We see these phenomena happening at an optimal level and an optimal frequency. So, for example, if we had fewer earthquakes, how uh, you know, advanced life would quickly not be possible here on planet Earth. We need earthquakes to recycle the nutrients that are crucial for life. But we don't get so many earthquakes that it's impossible for us to build cities. We don't get so few that we lack the resources we need for advanced life. It's all at an optimal level. Now, to put some balance to this, it was Jesus who said, don't build your home on sand, build it on rock. He's basically just saying, we know that these natural phenomena will occur and we should be wise enough uh, to ensure that we prepare. So, for example, I live in California, and uh, because of the frequency of earthquakes we have here, they got building codes that are designed so that our homes can withstand a magnitude 7.5 earthquake uh, without any of us being injured uh, inside the home. Mm. And, uh, you know, Turkey uh, wasn't prepared. They didn't have, I mean, it's a place where earthquakes of that magnitude happen, and uh, they weren't properly prepared. And before we point a finger there, I look at Seattle. Uh, Mm. Seattle is near a huge earthquake fault. And they could easily have a magnitude 8.5 and and magnitude 9. And they do not have building codes designed to prepare people there. I mean, I lived in the Pacific Northwest. Lots of unreinforced brick buildings. Those buildings come down in a magnitude 6. And so we need to prepare. Another part of America where we need to prepare, uh, is the uh, Missouri area. Uh, there's a big earthquake fault along the Mississippi Valley there. And it slipped in the mid 1800s and it rang all the church bells in Boston. I mean, it was an enormous earthquake, but because there weren't big cities in that area at that time, the damage wasn't that severe today. We'd be looking at trillions of dollars of damage.
0: Wow. Wow. And I have a one sort of ignorant question on the same day as the earthquake in Turkey, there was an earthquake in Buffalo, New York. Is yes. there any possibility that those two things are related?
1: I don't think there's any possibility. I mean, they're too far apart from one another. Earthquakes happen uh, and they happen all over the world. There are certain parts of the world where they're much more likely to happen. and. Uh, And we're not just talking earthquakes. I mean, hurricanes happen and hurricanes are good for us. They act as a thermostat to regulate the temperature of the planet. If We didn't have hurricanes. uh, You'd have hot spots in the oceans that would kill all the fish. Um, And we should be prepared again. uh, You know, instead of putting retired people on the beaches and mobile homes, on uh, the east shore of uh, South Florida, uh, <laughs> we should be putting them somewhere else, where so it's a lot safer. I mean, again, uh, you know, we know hurricanes happen there. Let's prepare.
0: One last question. I've got to ask you this because you're talking about the hurricanes, and I remember I just saw the movie not too long ago, "Day After Tomorrow," which is about sort of this global. You know, the effects of global warming and this huge superstorm, and the temperature dropped you know with like you know a hundred degrees within like you know thirty seconds or something like that. is that a is that a possibility? Are we looking at that kind of catastrophic event?
1: Well, uh, that actually is, can happen. I mean, uh, you know, I'm from Canada, and there's parts of Canada where the temperature can drop uh, ninety degrees within one hour. Uh, oh. So, I mean, you know, my father grew up in Calgary, and they called it Chinooks, where the temperature would be 50 below zero, and then uh, a Chinook would come in, and the temperature would jump up to 25 above, and everybody would go outside in their shorts and t-shirts <laughs> to enjoy the balmy weather, but the reverse can also happen, where it's 25 above, and the temperature can plummet down to 50 below, and, uh, you know, that that happens in certain Uh, Parts of the world where you're close to the mountains and hey, uh, I enjoy mountaineering as a hobby If you get up at high altitude You can literally be walking in sunlight and then go into the shade and have the temperature drop 80 degrees So I think what that movie was saying is with global warming That could happen to many other parts of the world that normally don't expect that
0: well, I, I could talk to you more because we could, we'll could. we do the next one on global warming. How about that? Then we'll, we'll talk about
1: that. Well, I've actually written a book on global warming called Weathering Climate Change. I think you'd be interested in it. would be more than happy to send it to you because I'm convinced we can resolve the problem of global warming and climate change while we boost the world's economy rather than crippling the world economy. I mean, that's to me what's so frustrating about this global warming controversy. People think we have to undergo draconian economic sacrifices to solve the problem. And the problem is we're selfish and people aren't going to do what's counter to their best interests. But God told us in advance that we're to manage the planet for our benefit and the benefit of all life, which implies there are solutions that are win-win. And so I describe about 40 different things we can do uh, to stabilize the climate while we boost the economy, especially for the poorest people of the world, and it also boosts the world's ecosystems.
0: Wow. Uh, Dr. Hugh Ross, thank you so much. Dr. Hugh Ross, founder of Reasons to Believe. Check it out. Websites. It's reasons.org, right?
1: Reasons.org, correct.
0: Uh, a plethora of of information about science, about the Bible, um, about, you know, bringing those two together and understanding science through the gospel message and God's creation. I want to thank you so much for being on Lighthouse Faith Podcast.
1: It's been my pleasure. Always is.
0: Uh, And thank you so much for listening. I'm Lauren Green. Have a blessed day.
1: Listen ad-free with a Fox News podcast plus subscription on Apple Podcasts. And Amazon Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on the Amazon Music app. I'm Guy Benson. Join me weekdays
0: at 3 p.m. Eastern as we break down the biggest stories of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers and guests. Listen live on the Fox News app or get the free podcast at
1: GuyBensonShow.com.